reading this morning from the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and uh, continuing in the series um, that we've had over the last few weeks. So John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out their choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him and may God bless that reading to us this morning Lord God, help us to understand uh, this passage. It seems fairly straightforward, but Lord, we pray that you would help us see its meaning. Show us your glory in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series in John, and we come to what John calls the first of Jesus' signs where Jesus turns water into wine. And I'm sure you've heard the story before. For those of you who enjoy a nice glass of red, I'm sure the fact that Jesus miraculously produces copious amounts of fine wine is reason enough to like this story. It's a good story. Feeding 5,000 people with bread is okay, but bread, wine, on the other hand, that's my kind of story. But what does it mean? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? Why is it that John decided to write down this story? Why is it that God has chosen to preserve John's writings right down through generation to generation so that right here this morning we are reading this story? What is it that we need to know about Jesus turning water into wine? Now, are we simply meant to see that Jesus likes to party or is there something more to this story? Well, the answer to that question hangs completely on the fact that this miracle is a sign. If you have a look down on the page in front of you, you'll see in verse 11, John writes this, when, uh, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. You see, John calls it a sign. In fact, every single miracle that Jesus performs in John's gospel is called a sign. He doesn't call them miracles, he doesn't call them powerful deeds, he calls them signs. There's seven of them. They each kind of build up, and the the final and greatest sign is 
actually Jesus dying on a cross and then miraculously walking out of his own grave alive. They are all signs that reveal something. And so because there are, they are signs, there's two things that we can say about them. Uh, first is that Jesus' miracles mean something. They have a meaning. They point to something else because that's what signs do. Signs communicate a message. Sometimes that message is obvious. If you see a red octagon with the word stop on it, you know what to do. It's very simple. Sometimes the sign takes a little bit more thinking, but you look at it enough and you go, oh yeah, I think I know what that's telling me. And then sometimes you have to have a double take and go, why? But anyway, you you still get it. Watch out for falling cows. Sometimes the pictures just get a little bit interesting. Can anyone tell what that is? Yeah, it's, watch, out, watch out for, car, uh, for thieves, I think. Uh, then there's some that need a little bit more explanation. Any ideas? <laughs> no explanations. I mean, it's actually kind of true. That, that sign means you can't drive down that road if you're carrying explosives in your car. Um, that one, any ideas? Anyone seen it before? You won't see it in this country. Any ideas? It's actually a sign what, telling you to watch out for illegal immigrants crossing the border in the southern states of America. Uh, and that one? I'll leave you to work out what that one means, because I don't know. It's just bizarre. You see... Sometimes the message of a sign is really obvious. Sometimes it takes some thinking. Sometimes once it's explained to you, you see it every time and then sometimes they're just confusing. But once you know the meaning of a sign, well, the the sign itself becomes less important, right? It's the message it conveys that you really need to see. So that's the first thing we see about signs. Signs communicate a message. They have a meaning. The other thing about signs is that once you know that meaning you'll also know that you need to respond to that meaning. Once you know that a red light at an intersection means you need to stop, well, you know that you need to stop, and you will stop, hopefully. Please do. Once you know that the red and yellow flags at the beach indicate the area that is patrolled by lifeguards, you know that you should respond by swimming between them. Well, in the same way, once we know what Jesus' miraculous signs mean... But we'll also know how we should respond. And so this morning we're going to look at this sign of Jesus. First we're going to look at Jesus' sign itself. Second we'll see what the sign means, what it points to, what message it reveals. And then finally we'll consider how we should respond to that message. The sign, the meaning and the response. Now the sign itself is pretty straightforward, right? Jesus is at a wedding, it's probably a family wedding because he's there with his mother. But in verse 3, there's a problem. They've run out of wine. And this is an unthinkable problem. It's a big problem. Running out of wine at a wedding in those days would be like, in our culture, running out of wine at a wedding. <laughs> it's bad news. In fact, it's probably a bigger problem in that culture, really, because in Jewish culture, it was the groom's responsibility to host the wedding feast. It was his job, and it was a job he took seriously. We actually have evidence of in-laws suing the groom 
because he failed at his job at his job as a wedding host. Can you just imagine that? The in-laws sue you after your own wedding? If my father-in-law sued me over our wedding, well, I would sue him back over his speech. (laughs) But anyway, the groom is about to be in big trouble. He's about to be embarrassed in front of all his family and all his friends. It's It's a disastrous situation for him. And Mary comes and tells Jesus this problem. Now, the response that we see Jesus makes, it's not as rude as it sounds in the original language. If you call your mum woman in English, you deserve whatever she does to you. But what Jesus says in Greek is, is a perfectly acceptable way of addressing your mother. So don't think that Jesus is being rude here. But he is a little bit annoyed. Do you see what he says? He says, why do you involve me? But then he adds something. He says, my hour has not yet come. And that's a really significant thing in the book of John. I might say the time has not yet come in your translation, but the hour or the time in John's gospel is it's really significant because throughout John's gospel, you'll read that same sentence again. My hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour had not yet come. And at this point in the story, we don't actually know what Jesus is talking about. If you're reading it from beginning to end, at this point, you don't, you don't know what the hour is. But all you know is that at some point, Jesus has a plan to accomplish something. And right now is not the time to execute that plan. But as you keep reading through John's Gospel, you'll get to chapter 12. And Jesus is at the festival in Jerusalem and he says, my hour has come. The time has arrived And from that point on in the story, everything is pointed towards Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. That is the hour. That is the time. That is the thing that Jesus is looking forward to from the very beginning of his ministry. That was the task he came to accomplish. But here in chapter 2, Jesus says, now is not the time. My hour has not yet come. I'm not ready to go to the cross. Which seems like a very weird response to they've run out of wine. I'm not ready to die. (laughs) But what, what it shows us, it shows us a very first hint that Jesus sees that this is more than just a catering problem. This situation before Jesus is not just about the wine and the wedding. It's about something more. And as we dig deeper into this text, we're going to see that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Mary responds by giving the very best advice that anyone could ever give. Do whatever Jesus tells you to the servants. And the servants take her advice. They fill six stone jars of water, six to seven hundred litres worth. They draw some out, take it to the MC at the wedding. And in verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. See, not only has Jesus miraculously turned ordinary water into wine, without even lifting a finger, mind you, he's turned it into the best wine. And there's lots of it, six to seven hundred litres of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it's an amazing miracle. It's, it's incredible. Presumably the servants were 
you know, overwhelmed by how crazy this is. The disciples saw what happened. They were amazed. But here's the question. What does it mean? Why did Jesus perform this sign? What's the sign pointing to? Remember, signs have a meaning. What is the meaning? Well, John actually tells us in verse 11. We've already read it. When Je- what Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. You see, Jesus' priority here isn't about showing people a good party. Jesus' aim here is to show people himself. He's wanting some people, at least, to see his glory. And that's the same for all of the signs. This sign and all the signs in John's Gospel were performed so that Jesus' glory could be revealed. But now comes the question, what is glory? What is he talking about? His glory is a bit of a tricky one. It's like light. Everyone knows what it is when you see it, but it's kind of tricky to define unless you're a physicist. What is glory? Well, in the Old Testament, glory is something that exclusively belongs to God. And it's particularly related to his character. God's glory is what God is like. We see this in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses has just led God's people out of Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai, and Moses is getting anxious about his job that God has given him. He's got to lead the people into the promised land and Moses is worried. He's like, how are they going to listen to me? I'm too small. He's scared and God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. And Moses is like, well, what good is that if I don't know who you are? I don't know what you're like. And so he says, he makes this very bold request. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me what you're like. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, God responds by saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. You see what it shows us about God's glory? It's, it's his character, it's his goodness, his mercy, his compassion. It's all those things. But God is so glorious, so dazzling, so beyond our ability to comprehend, so perfect that no one can even see his glory and live. And yet here in John's Gospel, we're told that by his signs, Jesus is bit by bit revealing the glory of God. He is showing the world what God is like. Imagine, if you will, the sun hidden behind a cloud. I'm not sure if you can imagine it, but if you step outside, you'll see it. The sun hidden behind a cloud. And with each sign that Jesus performs, a bit more cloud sort of fades away, blows away. And as the cloud blows away, you start to see the light shining through, just a little bit at first. But as more cloud moves away, as Jesus reveals more of himself, eventually the clouds vanish. And at the cross, actually, at Jesus' final sign, we see God's goodness 
and mercy and compassion in all its glory. So that's what the signs are doing. They're revealing Jesus' glory. But then you wonder how. How does this sign reveal Jesus' glory? Why does Jesus turning water into wine, what does that show us about God's character? To understand that, we need to put together three puzzle pieces from the Old Testament. You need to understand something about wine, something about washing, and something about weddings. And they all start with W, so you can remember them. Wine, washing, weddings. Firstly, in wine, <laughs> just like it is for us today, wine is how you celebrate in the Bible. It's the universal language of joy and celebration. When things are going well, there is wine. When things are not going well, there is no wine. When things are going really, really, really well, there's lots and lots and lots of wine. And the thing that is going really, really well in the Old Testament, the best thing that can happen is being in right relationship with God, living in God's land where God is. That, that's, the, that's the hope of Old Testament believers. That's the thing that's really worth celebrating. And because it's something that's really worth celebrating, well, when the prophets speak about that situation, they speak about it in terms of there being lots and lots of wine. In Amos chapter 9, Amos is uh, prophesying about the hope for God's people living with God, living in their land, not being in exile, not being punished for their sin, living in right relationship with God. And he says, the wine will flow down the mountainsides. There will be a flood of wine, which, if it actually happened, wouldn't be that pleasant. But, but the image is that there is so much joy, bountiful joy, abundant joy. That's the first piece of the puzzle. Wine equals joy in right relationship with God. The second piece of the puzzle is washing. Because how is it that Old Testament people could actually live in right relationship with God? Well, they had to work for it, didn't they? They had to make sacrifices to atone for their sin. They had to obey all the purity laws to remind them that the only way that they could be in right relationship with God is if their sin was dealt with. And part of those purity laws for the Old Testament Jews was ceremonial washing. They had to wash themselves lots and lots and lots. They had to wash their hands. They had to wash their heads. They washed constantly. We're going to see that come up in John chapter 2. But firstly, uh, thirdly, weddings. We've got wine, washing, now weddings. Because when people are in right relationship with God, one of the ways that the Old Testament expresses that is through the language of weddings. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are described as God's bride. An unfaithful bride a lot of the time. A bride who abandons her husband. And yet a bride who is welcomed back and faithfully loved by her husband. Right relationship with God is expressed as a marriage. So we've got three pieces of the puzzle there. We've got wine, we've got washing, and we've got weddings. Now look at John chapter 2. Because the first thing that should catch our attention is the jars that Jesus uses to hold all the wine. Do you see what John says about them in verse 6? He says, The six stone water jars are the kind used by the Jews 
for ceremonial washing. Jesus takes those jars, not just any jars, he takes those jars, the ones the Jews used to try to make themselves clean before God. He takes those jars and he fills them with wine, lots of wine. It's as if Jesus is saying, you're not going to need them anymore. Let me repurpose them for you. You don't need to wash anymore. There's another way for you to be clean. Now, we don't see exactly what that way is yet. This is the first of his signs that he reveals his glory. But the first thing he shows us is that the old way of being right before God, that's not going to cut it anymore. There's a better way. And so he takes those jars and he fills them with wine, which is the sign of God's blessing, the sign of being in right relationship with God. He says, away with the washing jars, it's time to celebrate. Something good is happening. Something exciting is happening. There's something worth celebrating. And what is it? God has come to deal with the problem of sin. God has come to live with his people. That's the wine. God has come to take his unfaithful bride and make her clean. When Jesus turned water into wine, he wasn't doing it to show some wedding guests a good party. He was doing it to show you and I his glory. He was doing it to show us that he is the groom. Remember, the groom is the one who provides the wine. He's saying, I'm the groom. I provide the wine for the party. And I've come to meet my bride. I'm the one who has come to deal with your sin and its consequences. I am the hope of God's people. That's what Jesus is showing us with this sign. He's showing just the first glimpse of it, and with each sign it will become clearer. But what do we do with it? We've seen the sign, he turns water into wine. We've seen what the sign means, it reveals Jesus' glory. But signs demand a response. Signs aren't there just to be looked at. They're to show you what to do. And the response that Jesus is looking for is exactly what the disciples do in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that's interesting Because remember, Jesus' disciples are already following him. (laughs) We we read in last chapter that they have heard what John the Baptist said about Jesus. They have heard that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then they start following him. They've already declared him to be the Messiah, the promised King of Israel. They're already committing themselves to Jesus. And now, John says, only now did they believe. Now, what do we make of this? I don't think John is saying that this is the first point that the disciples believed. I don't think this is the point at which they started trusting Jesus. I think they were already trusting Jesus. But what John is saying is that when they saw this sign, they had their eyes opened just a little bit more to appreciate who Jesus is. They see more of his glory. They see more of his goodness and mercy and compassion. They come to believe 
that the one they are following is just that little bit more glorious, that little bit more incredible, that little bit more worth following. They see with fresh perspective that Jesus is the one who will deal with their uncleanness. He takes the jars used for ceremonial washing and says, let me take care of that for you. They see that Jesus is the one who will offer them true and lasting joy. He's the one who brings the wine to the party. He is the one that holds the key to endless joy. It's a joy that they'll get to experience now, but a joy that they and us can experience fully in the new creation. They see that Jesus is the bridegroom who shows his love for his bride by dying for her. They see all this about Jesus and their faith is renewed, it grows, it deepens. And friends, that's exactly how we should respond to the signs of Jesus. You see, it's really easy for us to lose sight of Jesus' glory. It's really easy for us to know things about Jesus in our heads. To know the gospel and yet to forget how incredible it is. It's really easy to forget that the gospel is something worth celebrating. Consider this, you know, in the, in the fruit of the Spirit, you know what the second thing that Paul has on his list of the fruit of the Spirit? The first one's love, the second one is joy. If you truly believe in Jesus, if you truly grasp the truth of the gospel, the first thing you'll do is you'll notice the change in your life is that you'll love. You'll love God. You'll love people. The fruit of the Spirit is love, but then there will also be joy. You've seen how incredible it is that Jesus came to deal with your sin. That he came to make it possible for you to live in relationship with God. That's incredible news. And if we know it, if we see it, we'll rejoice. Friends, when Jesus turned water into wine, he popped the cork on the celebrations. The celebrations are just getting started, but they're going to continue in the new creation. He came and secured that for you. Oh dear. I hope you're ready to party. Let's pray. Lord God, We praise you for your awesome power. We praise you that you sent Jesus into this world to reveal your glory, your goodness, your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that when we look at Jesus, we see you for who you are. We see that you are completely loving, completely fair and completely worth giving ourselves to. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us respond to this sign. Help us to see the joy that is ours because Jesus has come to make us clean and to take us into new life, life with you that lasts forever. Lord, help us to know this joy, help us to experience this joy now, but help us to long for the day where we will feast with you in the new creation. Keep our eyes fixed on that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.